Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us today. Um, Today I'm going to be speaking with Alex Woodward, a staff writer at Gambit, who has looked in on uh, New Orleans strip club scene a year after a major crackdown there. Um, We'll also be talking to John Zimmerman about the uh, historic lows and violent crime in New Orleans as the year comes to a close. And last, I'll check in with Sarah Pagones, our North Shore Bureau Chief, on new allegations involving the former sheriff of St. Tammany Parish, Jack Strain. Uh, First, let's talk to Alex. Um, Alex, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So you were up at this protest uh, recently in Baton Rouge uh, where uh, a bunch of New Orleans uh, strippers were up there along with a somewhat more famous stripper, a uh, native, native of uh, Baton Rouge. Let's listen to a little bit of that. Came out and are freezing their asses off. <laughs> um, excuse my shivering. It's a lot colder than I thought it was going to be. Anyway, I'm here to stand up for the rights of women. Tomorrow, for those of you who don't know, a law will go into effect in Louisiana, which, believe it or not, will make it illegal for dancers throughout the state, aged 18 to 20, to start a career as an exotic dancer if they choose. Had this law been in effect when I was 18 and started dancing here in Louisiana, I would have missed out on many of the opportunities that I have been afforded to become a successful businesswoman and to get out of a very dangerous situation that I grew up in. So, um... Well, walk us through this, Alex. What's what's Stormy Daniels talking about? What's this new law? Yeah, so this is a, a law she kind of succinctly described it there that um, prevents women 18 to 20 from um, performing nude in strip clubs in Louisiana. It picks up um, from uh, about 2016. The legislature passed uh, a law that the Fifth Circuit Court um, later rejected and then came back and um, agreed to. So that kicked in this, this month. And it's kind of the last straw in a way for a lot of dancers in Louisiana this year, um, following crackdowns, uh, over the last couple of years, really on Bourbon street and New Orleans strip clubs, um, linking dancers, uh, ostensibly to prostitution charges or more broader charges of lewd conduct that end up getting the clubs in trouble and putting the dancers out of work. So what's the bigger framework to all this is what? I mean, is this part of a coordinated effort to, and I should say, Alex, you had a very interesting cover story in this week's Gambit, um, but the broader picture here is that we're clean up Bourbon Street or make it more family-friendly, and who's involved in this effort? Who are the players? Yeah, so uh, there was a big uh, push from the former mayoral administration under Mitch Landrieu to um, clean up Bourbon Street. Um, his pitch was to make it more family friendly. That kind of uh, dovetailed with uh, a study with the city planning commission that um, had the backing of uh, the New Orleans City Council to study whether we need strip clubs on Bourbon Street or, or what are ways that we could um, rein them in, in a sense. Or what, to have fewer of them. or Sure. Yeah, um, let them close through attrition and then cap that number. A number of pitches were made. Um, that came uh, from the hiring of an attorney that Landrieu had hired, uh, or the city had hired, uh, Scott Berthold, who had 
done similar things in cities across the country. Um, his mission wasn't necessarily to close the clubs and put dancers out of work, but to, you know, clean up, I think what he calls them like secondary effects, you know, real estate values, um, attracting certain kinds of business to neighboring properties. So he influenced that decision, um, or rather, rather he, that reporting um, that led to the city planning to come up with a report. And uh, by the time it got to city council um, this past summer, uh, strip club workers were out in force to really explain how detrimental something like that could be to their livelihoods. So uh, just so I get this straight, I mean, the idea was to have fewer clubs or to uh, to have less of some kind of spillover effect from the clubs or both? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> the other part of that is um, a um, coordinated effort from Louisiana Office of uh, Alcohol and Tobacco Control and New Orleans Police Department, um, ostensibly to fight human trafficking. Mm-hmm led to uh, a crackdown on bourbon in January, this past January, um, where a bunch of clubs were slapped with charges ranging from prostitution to drug sales to um, lewd conduct. Um, But no arrests were made for trafficking. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't arrest anyone for any of the charges they came up with. What ended up happening were clubs being handed um, uh, suspensions of their alcohol licenses um, and then eventually clubs had to close. Uh, some switched formats entirely. So how many clubs did we have before and how many do we have now? Uh, it's 14. Um, eight clubs were targeted. And now I can't for say for certain. But okay. we've several have closed down. Yes. And um, let's talk about trafficking for a second and sure. the difference. So, so well, first of all, trafficking is defined as what? It's, it's, a, it's people working... A, being forced into prostitution against their will, essentially. Yeah, co- to- coercion, force uh, are, are requirements there. There's a federal guideline for that. Okay. And so th- this has been sort of a general allegation that's been thrown around that some of these clubs are engaging in this, but there hasn't been an actual charged crime of trafficking that we know of. Right. Um, but there has been there have been a few uh, instances of, say, people – offering sex acts for money, i.e. prostitution, but not nothing that we've seen that that seems to be trafficking. Right, yeah, and that's uh, that's a big issue um, for a lot of folks on the advocacy side of trying to uh, paint the complete picture of this, um, where there are law enforcement agencies who do define trafficking. Um, ACC commissioner said kind of explicitly that, by definition, um, any kind of sex work is trafficking, um, whereas, you know, NOPD and a number of other law enforcement agencies and uh, community groups, advocates um, agree that, no, there is there is a difference between consensual sex work and trafficking. And there is actually a legal definition of tra- trafficking, exactly. which is not the same as prostitution. Correct. Okay. What are these, these women who protested in Baton Rouge um, led by Stormy Daniels, but of course she's not a local dancer, but what, what are they saying? needs to happen or what what would they like to see happen sure yeah and it's interesting too because stormy daniels uh jumped into that um it was a coordinated protest with bourbon alliance of responsible entertainers aka bear which has been an organizing effort for bourbon street um, club workers uh, and then a bunch of dancers statewide um but yeah this is uh the this the the protest and the rally at the capitol was um looking at this age ban but taking um 
really just a piece of that. Um, there's a piece of a larger issue, and that's um, how the state is approaching its sex workers and its um, strippers, you know, kind of vulnerable communities are um, being pushed into the fringe um, for um, what they argue are is a moralistic crusade. And I think Stormy Daniels and some others said that, that this kind of a push might actually push some of these women into more of a desperate position where they could be more at, more vulnerable. That's part of her, her story, and she's talked about that to uh, length as well. Um, there are a lot of women do see these clubs as um, a sort of a refuge or, or spaces where they are protected from the outside world. They are protected from bad histories, um, bad relationships, um, abusive uh, partners, um, and other, you know, influencing um, folks like that. Um, but at the same time, they're able to make sustain, uh, you know, a safe and living wage um, and good money while... Um, also getting to set their own schedules mm-hmm. and, and having, um, having that kind of um, safety net. Um, but they fear if the more that that's criminalized, the more they could be pushed um, into the hands of pimps or what have you. Exactly. Okay. Well, uh, it's a really interesting story. Uh, make sure to pick up a gambit on your newsstand this week. And uh, thanks for coming by, Alex. I appreciate thanks so it. much. All right. All right, joining us now is John Zimmerman, who covers projects, including a lot of criminal justice topics for The Advocate. Thanks for coming by, John. Thanks for having me. So, big story this week. Uh, We've been watching this all year, but the uh, crime numbers for the year in New Orleans are almost out, and we're far enough into the year that that, uh, they can make some predictions, one of which is that we're going to have the fewest number of murders since 1971. Pretty remarkable. Right, and not just murders. Shootings are way down. Uh, armed robberies are down 12% if you project uh, through the end of the year. Uh, but obviously, the, the homicides are, are sort of the biggest number there. We're looking fewer than 140, which is uh, the fewest murders in New Orleans in decades. Yeah, and I think, you know, you mentioned shootings, and I think one of the things that the, the biggest, even though it's remarkable to me that murders are down to the lowest level since 1971, it's also important to remember that the murder rate is still high, but also that we haven't had like a sea change in the murder rate. It's really just a few murders less than we've had in recent years, which not, you know, everyone is important. But what's really remarkable to me is these non-fatal shooting numbers are are down significantly and in some previous years we had not seen that happen and and so what do you make of that yeah i think criminologists will tell you that murder fluctuations uh are you know really hard to to pin down sometimes it's a question of you know where somebody shoots if somebody shoots someone in the right spot or not and and so how quickly ems got there that kind of thing right what kind of treatment they got um you know, so they'll tell you that shootings, which occur much more frequently than murders, are kind of a better indicator of, of violent crime trends. And, and those are down 30 uh, percent from about 300 to a little more than 200 if you project forward. And so I think I think you could say that it's sort of the murder number being down is not so much of an anomaly if, if all the other violent crime numbers are down as well. You know, what we owe that to is kind of the $64,000 question, you know, right. nationally murderers down quite a bit um, as well this year. And uh, you might attribute some of this drop to that, uh, to sort of this general trend. Um, Police Chief Harrison, Michael Harrison, has said that, you know, the institution of more crime cameras, these high definition cameras that you see around the city, 
uh, have contributed, you know, to this drop in violent crime as, as well as some of the kind of NOLA for life uh, outreach programs that they have. But, but it's really hard to say at this point. It's one year of decline or, or it's been a couple of years of decline, but this, this sort of, you know, lowest homicide in decades, uh, is, is, it's hard to say that's not good news. Oh yeah, it's absolutely. Uh, no matter how you slice it, it seems like good news. I guess um, it's one of those things that when you can't quite put your finger on why it happened, it's a little. It's hard to know uh, whether it's we should expect it to continue. But um, uh, I was talking a little bit earlier with uh, Jeff Asher, the crime analyst who we quoted in our story on this on Sunday, and he he made that point and said you know, he's often a skeptic of some of these year-over-year changes that are sometimes celebrated by public officials because, you know, there's a lot of noise in the data generally. But, um, you know, it's also this is a case where there's less noise in the data in terms of it's a pretty substantial drop on, on in both shootings and murders. And uh, That's a pretty clean sweep for, for yeah. most of the violent crimes. We have seen an increase in thefts and auto burglaries, but uh, I think when you when you ask New Orleans residents what they care most about is the violent crime. Now, have you heard from lawyers or other people that you talk to this theory that crime cameras and so forth are responsible for this or that they've made either help the police catch people or help prosecutors make better cases? I mean, obviously you can envision that being true but is that anecdotally are you hearing a lot of that or well i think it's starting i think you're going to start to see these the the footage uh you know show up in the discovery in these criminal cases and you're going to start to see just how to what extent these cameras are playing kind of a pivotal role in these criminal cases i don't know that we've seen that entirely just yet yeah okay um and i guess another bit of good news here is new orleans will uh is almost assuredly not going to be uh, the murder capital of the world, as it has been in uh, in a number of previous years, although not the last several. But uh, I think it's a long way. We're still a long way from dropping out of kind of the top five. We've been in the top five and the top three for several years now. I think 2011, 2010, somewhere in there was the last time we were number one in you know murder capital of the world. But but over the last couple decades, we've We've been in that top spot for several of those years. And, you know, in this case, we're, you know, where our crime rate is, where our murder rate is, is it has been kind of head and shoulders with a few other cities above others. So this this drop is not going to send us outside of the top 20 or 30, I don't think. Right. I think we're when I spoke to uh, Jeff Asher earlier, he said we're we're still a ways from getting out of the even getting to number five would take a another sort of big drop in crime because it's i think the top ones are our cell or new orleans uh detroit st louis and baltimore and then there's kind of a drop off after that mm-hmm. but um so uh anything else we should be looking for on this front well just sustainability really with this uh you know, since we don't really know, you know, the factors that are at play in this decline, it's it's sort of hard to trust that you won't see a, a bump. I mean, this thing sort of kind of goes in waves when you look at violent crime and murder in this city. But yeah, I mean, we're going to look to see um, if the consent decree is, is dissolved going forward, you know, in the next three or four months or and and you know what that means for the department you know where it spends its money it's definitely doing more to keep you know nonviolent people uh, out of jail and, and and moving them to social services you know whether the focus on violent crime that police are trying 
Uh, and and the, the DA in Orleans Parish, Leon Cano's arrow, is, you know, his really focused on violent crime. Whether that's going to pay off over time, we're going to see. All right. Well, uh, we'll keep watching those numbers. And in the meantime, I guess uh, a rare bit of good news for New Orleans on the crime front. Yes, indeed. All right. Thanks, John. Thank you. All right. Joining us now is Sarah Pagones, the North Shore Bureau Chief for The Advocate. Sarah, thanks for uh, being here today. Good to be here. So a uh, big story last week that you broke along with a couple of us and Katie Moore over at Channel 4 about the former sheriff, uh, Jack Strain. Uh, we already knew that he was being investigated on corruption charges, but this story took a little turn for the, uh, for the strange and disturbing. Tell us a little more about what we learned last week. Well, last week we learned that while there has been an ongoing investigation into financial improprieties centered around the Slidell worker lease, that um, investigators had uncovered some evidence that Jack Strain was involved in underage um, sex with um, a handful of teenagers that included um, both boys and girls. So we don't, he's not been charged with anything related to this yet, but they are investigating, we report at least four cases in which yes. he is alleged to have abused or sexually abused a teenager. That's right. And no, he hasn't been charged in that. And it's worth pointing out he hasn't been charged in the, um, in the bribery or conspiracy to commit wire fraud case yet either. Although there's a lot more specificity on that with two people having been charged in a bill of information. Right. And in that bill of information, they implicitly accuse uh, former Sheriff Strain and, and almost promise that they are going to charge him, although, as you said, they have not done so yet. That's right. And also last week they did um, enter not guilty pleas, but that was before a magistrate. So they're not allowed to plead guilty in front of a magistrate. And that is expected to be forthcoming, a guilty plea that is. Okay. By Hansen and Skip Keen. Okay. Now there is, these cases, you know, on the surface seem to have nothing to do with each other. One is kind of a, described by the feds as a garden variety corruption scheme in which he awards a contract to two of his friends to run, to privatize a work release program that's under the auspices of the sheriff's office. And it's essentially a scheme where they make a bunch of money and allegedly, according to the indictment, they kick back some of the money to him. So, you know, his friends make money and he makes some money. That's, you know, something we've seen in government corruption cases over and over. Um, now, this other case is totally different, but there is some, I mean, as far as we know, they, they don't have a lot to do with each other, but maybe there is some crossover. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, certainly the the allegations came to the attention of those investigating the work release while they were conducting that investigation. Um, specifically, we're told by Randy Smith, who is the current sheriff, but whose agency is not investigating this, it's, it's being handled by others, that they were looking for a motive for Jack Strain to um, be seeking this kind of extra income, I guess. Ah. Uh, so you and Katie Moore interviewed uh, Sheriff Smith last week. Let's see if we can listen to a little sound of that. Federal investigators in this case had mentioned during the investigation that they were also looking into the motive of why this this public corruption uh, bribery case took place and with the work release program back in Slidell and possibly even in Covington. So Sheriff Smith there is talking about uh, some kind of a search for a motive. What, what's he getting at? Well, he seems to be getting at Jack would have to have a reason to need that kind of money other than greed. 
Um, he didn't go into any specifics. He didn't elaborate on what he thought it would be. He, he basically just said that while the feds were looking for a motive, that's when they um, underco- uncovered some allegations that there was this um, improper sexual activity going on. I see. It's a little bit unusual because you would think that the motive of a kickback scheme would just be to get kickbacks. But I mean, maybe what the unusual thing is here is that Jack Strain does not seem to be the primary beneficiary of the kickback scheme. Is that what he's getting at, you think? Well, that may be what he's saying. I mean, it certainly kind of implied that in the in the Bill of Information. It seemed like most of the money went to um, to the two people who he had tapped to, to kind of run it. Actually, they got it through their adult children, who were the ostensible owners. But, you know, he also could be just running a volume business. Who knows? I mean, <laughs> all we know is that it wasn't a whole lot of money. So what else could have been involved? And we also happen to know that at least two of the alleged victims were at some point hired um, to work in that work release program. So that's sort of a nexus that could have easily led the feds from one thing to the other. In other words, if they were investigating the kickback scheme, they might have found out about the the alleged sex abuse that way or vice versa, I suppose. That's possible. I, it's, it's pretty clear to me that the investigation into the financial improprieties has been a, a longer standing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that at least as early as October of 2017, we know from sources that they were talking to um, people concerning the sexual allegations. There's another thing that the sheriff, the current sheriff, mentioned in, in the interview we did, and that was um, that maybe there was an involvement or that the feds were also looking at an early, another work release program, one in Covington. They're, they're both shut down now. But um, that is unclear. It wasn't certainly mentioned in the Bill of Information. That was also um, set up by at least one person who was involved in setting it up is, is somebody who was a close associate of the former sheriff. Um, Marlon Peachy was his campaign treasurer. Um, he also worked for um, Jack for a long time. He was the warden of the jail. So he was one of the people who was involved in setting up that work release. But um, he flatly denied that he ever gave any kind of a kickback to Jack when I spoke to him last week. And that was the work release that came initially maybe under more scrutiny, partly because it was the first one that, that uh, Jack Strain had set up and, and also because they had a lot of problems there. They did have a lot of problems. They had, um, they had people living off-site when really you're supposed to live on-site. Um, they had one guy die of a drug overdose in a, in a uh, work shed. Um, they had another guy get murdered when he was supposed to be there. Keep in mind that even though they're out in the community working at regular jobs, at night they're supposed to be back at the work release, which is a barracks-like facility. It's it's low it's a low security facility, but they're supposed to be locked in. Mm-hmm. And another interesting thing that Marlon Peachy told you was he said that when his place was closed down, they took the fifty highest earners and moved them over to the Slidell work release, which was uh, he described it as a big windfall for the operators of that facility, I guess. Yes, he did. And he also said that when he talked to the feds, which he said happened about two years ago, that they specifically asked him if he thought that was a motive for having closed him down. Um, He says when they talked to them that they mostly asked about the Slidell work release, not so much about him. Um, These these facilities do make money by, um, you know, they get to keep a a large share, the lion's share of of the wages of the inmates. But think about it this way, too. If you have one and you have another one and you're having to close one down because it's uh, had some problems, 
you wouldn't probably take the lower paid one right. if you were being a good steward of the right. of the parish's finances. So there could be an innocent explanation for that as well. Right, and and I think one of uh, you quoted in your story the other day uh, a document where the correction secretary Jimmy LeBlanc said that even if the sheriff hadn't closed this particular work release down, the one in Covington, that that he would have because of all yeah. the problems there. So yeah. so. Uh, that may give uh, Jack Strain some cover in that case. Yeah, I don't think, if I were Jack Strain, I wouldn't be sweating too much about that one. But obviously from developments last week, there's plenty of other things to sweat about. Right. So just looking ahead, uh, what do we expect next? Um, well, there's a February 11th trial date for Skip Keene and Doc Hansen, but you know it's very unlikely it'll go to trial because they did, um, they did get charged in a bill of information, a sign that they're going to make a deal. So I would think sometime, you know, if not late this year, early next year, they'll be um, changing their plea. Uh And, of course, the big thing everybody's looking for is, is there going to be another indictment or a a bill of information that's going to target what was referred to in the first document as public official A. Right. And then down the road, I guess the question will be whether these sex abuse allegations result in any charges. And if they do, we would expect them probably to be brought by the district attorney, Warren Montgomery, rather than by the U.S. attorney, correct? Right. Because of the nature of what's alleged, it would not be a federal crime, and it would be a state one. And those could be much more serious charges based on uh, based on just the nature of the crimes. Absolutely. I think you'd be looking at worse sentences. And, um, you know, the other thing we, we don't know is if there might be more people bringing forth allegations in the future. That remains to be seen, too. Right. Okay, well, um, great stories, Sarah. Um, Shocking news, and uh, we know you'll stay after it. So uh, thanks for talking to me today. Thank you. All right, take care. Bye-bye. The Neutral Ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Email me at grussell, with two S's and two L's, at theadvocate.com, or call me at 504-636-7437. See you next week.